Hey, episode 101 has a nice palindromic quality to it. Today is August 13, 2018, and you're listening to, or maybe even watching, Human Factors Cast. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. Blake is out sick this week, but today I am joined by Mr. Woodrow Gustafson. You may know him from some of our bonus episodes. He's been hanging out with us at Kai. Uh, a couple other times he's been on the show. We got a lot to talk about today, such as what happens when you try to turn off a robot when it's screaming for its life, why you don't look for cyclists when you're about to make a right turn, how stress alters the way we process bad news, and what's up with that stolen plane from Seattle Airport. We'll be back to break all that down right after this. Strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week. We pack news, interviews, reviews, and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on. But we can't do it without you. You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. Okay, we're back. Woodrow, how are you, man? Doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while since you've been on the show. Yes, it has. It has. I'm glad to be back. I'm sorry it's uh, because Blake's sick, but hopefully I can uh, do my part. That's okay, man. I think you'll you'll more than fill the part. Um, so I, I got to know, what's been going on with you since the last time we talked? Last time we talked was Kai 2018, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was several months back. That was a couple months ago. So uh, now you're here. We're on video, uh, which I'll mention in a bit. But um, you, I, I walked into your office earlier today to ask if you could uh, step in for Blake. And I noticed you were having some Android problems. Is this something that you want to discuss on the show? <laughs> uh, I will briefly mention it. But yeah, it, it is a uh, source of frustration. That's for sure. So, uh, so my phone is uh, about a two and a half years old now. So it's a, a Galaxy S7 Edge. And, okay. uh, yeah. And now it's to the point where it's, it's extremely slow. I've had to go and delete tons of apps. It's kind of that, that whole running slow. Cause there's a new, there's new updates and everything like that. So I've been starting to research some new, uh, some new phones and I came across the, uh, the S 10 that's potentially coming out or at least being released in, uh, early 19. Right. So you, you, you've been looking for phones. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's just frustrating when they like slow down on you. After yeah. like they're built to last only a certain amount of time sure. yeah. to get you to buy the next model. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm like two months away from paying it off. So I'm like looking forward to those couple months of not having those right. payments. And then I have to go right back, to right it back again. into it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating. They, yeah, yeah. I mean, we talk about user experience and, and human factors on the show and it's just so sort of frustrating to where the engineering piece of it is not built to last for, sort of the, the longevity, right? I mean, um, 
you know, back in my day, you used to buy a product that would last you for your entire life. You'd build, you'd buy a quality Swiss Army knife, and you'd never have to replace it. Um, and it just feels like no technology kind of matches that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Especially, uh, yeah, in this day and age, right, where where um, technology goes so fast, right, uh, that you have to keep up. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, I want to talk about something else too. So, we, you and I, talk frequently about video games. You're you're very much. Um, I don't know how to describe the types of games that you're into. All sorts. <laughs> All sorts. It's a mixed bag. I, I do I do uh, farming simulators yeah. to uh, you know first person shooters to RPGs. I mean I just like everything. Right. So I gotta say, man, I finished this game last night. I was uh it, it's called Steam World Dig Two. And um it's kind of it's it's kind of a cool sort of uh, they consider it like a Metroidvania. Are you familiar with the genre? Uh, I think so. Yeah, it's like uh, where you basically unlock different powers, and that will allow you to get to places that you couldn't previously before. And right, it's right. kind of yep. uh, so. Anyway, I was I was playing this game, and I was really into it. The gameplay mechanics are really fun. And then I get to the I get to what I think is like the first or second boss, and it's actually the end of the game. <laughs> and it kind of struck me. I was like, "Wow, th- I I love the hell out of this game. It's it's amazing. It's fun." Um, a good time, but I just, I wasn't expecting the ending to be that soon. Yeah. And I, it was just like at that part where I was starting to feel the rhythm of the game and it got got me thinking like, what can you do to sort of telegraph that the end of the game is coming without sort of discouraging the player from, um, you know, uh, from, from, I don't know how to put it. It's like, how do you, how do you telegraph that the end is coming? Cause like normally I'm, I'm, aware of that kind of stuff coming down the right. pipeline but uh in this game it just kind of hit me and it was abrupt and sudden and then it was over and i was like well what do i do now yeah yeah that's definitely frustrating um yeah it can definitely happen and the worst part is especially some of the games that i play i'll play till the end and then i'll i'll tell myself oh well, i'll go back for all those little quests and all right, the, the collectibles the collectibles and stuff do i ever no no uh, <laughs> <laughs> once i'm done i'm like well there's really no point to the game so yeah, it's uh, that's a tough one though. Um, I'll definitely have to uh, to think about it. So I got one more piece of banter, but we'll take that right after the programming notes. So uh, again, last as I mentioned last week, uh, last week was our big 100 episode, um, spectacular, if you will. Uh, we launched a couple different things, so now you can access us via your uh, personal smart home assistant that I will lovingly name Alexander. Uh, for reasons that I don't want her to go off right now, but you can—it's uh, a—it's a—it's a device by Amazon. You can ask her to actually. You know what? I'll do it right now because you're listening anyway. Alexa, play the latest episode of Human Factors Cast, and boom, she'll play the latest episode of Human Factors Cast. I also want to reiterate: now we are on YouTube. Um, there is going to be a slight delay just because of video production. I think we'll be shooting for Tuesdays around 5 p.m., so one day delayed. Uh, but if that is your preferred medium of choice, then. Uh, you know, hopefully that's not too big of a delay for you. Uh, we do ask that all of our listeners uh, go like and subscribe. I hate asking for I really hate asking for this uh, because everybody asks for it. But if you like and subscribe, that would be really helpful for us, especially with the algorithms. Um, and it'll allow us to name it'll allow us to actually name the channel. So we can say youtube.com slash human factors cast instead of a string of numbers. Uh, so genuinely, that does help us out. Um so please go like and subscribe if you can. Uh, and also, uh, last week we announced this giveaway for free registration to this year's annual meeting in Philadelphia. Um, yeah, it's really cool. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. We've partnered with HFES. Um, 
So what you got to do to enter this is tweet what you're looking forward to and tag Human Factors Cast and HFES and uh, with the hashtag HFCast. Um, and we've posted up a couple other links on our Twitter and Facebook. And, and there's a couple other ways to win, such as following us on all the social media accounts. So go check that out and enter because this is a great opportunity, whether or not you are a student or a, a practitioner that's been in the field for 30 plus years. It's a, it's a great thing. All right, Woodrow, I mentioned HFES. You are going, yes? I am now, yes. We can officially <laughs> announce that Woodrow is going with us to I, HFES. I, I don't technically have my my letter saying official, but it, yes, right. it is official. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I just got my itinerary today, so I'm I'm on a Sunday night flight, uh, and I'll be there for Ergo X on Monday nice. all the way through the week. I'm very excited. Hotel room is booked. Uh, we're good to go. We're working with HFES to get the actual registration so i'm i'm excited for this um and of course hfes is in philadelphia this year it's from october 1st through 5th um we want to encourage all of our listeners if you can make it go this is a great opportunity for you to network with other people in the field uh and uh you know go attend the plenary sessions those are great we're we're partnering with hfes like i said uh we're gonna have a booth there right by registration stop by uh, we'll say hi, and, and uh, you can actually listen live to some of our conversations that we're going to be having with some of these plenary speakers, past and present, and future presidents of HFES. It's going to be really exciting. Um, if there's any speakers that you would like us to have on the show, if you can't make it, reach out to us on our Slack channel, on our Twitter. Uh, just let us know, because we can reach out to them and see if they can get them uh, to be on the show, because we just want to produce content that's relevant to you. And, and if you have anybody in mind that's... Um, you know, got interesting stuff to talk about. We're, we're happy to entertain that idea. Uh, so yeah, we'll have a bunch of bonus episodes from there. Fantastic. Woodrow, what are you looking forward to this year at HFES? Uh, the networking aspect is always great for me. Um, I love, uh, I love meeting some, some new people and, uh, seeing kind of what some of the new research is going on out there. Um, yeah. but I'm actually excited to, uh, I actually am, uh, doing a panel, um, for the student session on Monday morning. Um, so if anyone's going at 10:30, there's a uh, panel for people that are transitioning to um, to being in a professional workforce, uh, and I've been invited to be a panelist on that. So that'll be that'll be really fun. I'm really looking forward to that. You know, it'd be great is if we could get the audio from that panel. We'll see if we can we can do that. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure we can. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to tap into as many audio sources as we can and just kind of, uh, I mean, we, we have this philosophy here of no human factors practitioner left behind, and we genuinely want to bring as much content um, out there to practitioners as we can, because honestly, uh, that's that's the only way we grow is by sharing information. That's my belief anyway. Um, and I feel like locking things behind paywalls and, you know, aside from human factors, cast infinite, that's, that's, an, that's the exception because we, <laughs> that's how we support the show, but we'll bring most of this content. We'll bring all the content, the bonus content to you guys for free of charge. Uh, and I mentioned Patreon. I'll mention that again, but, uh, or you heard it in the commercial. I don't need to do it. All right. Well, Woodrow, what do you think we get in the news? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Hang on. There we go. That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical. we got some transportation in there, uh, some stress, psychology. Uh, what else we got this week? we got a lot of stuff this week. As long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it's fair game. Woodrow, what do we got up first this week? A new study finds it's harder to turn off a robot when it's begging for its life. Oh, man. So robots uh, designed to interact socially with humans are slowly becoming more and more common. 
But how good are we at treating these robots as robots? A growing body of evidence suggests not good at all. Studies have repeatedly shown we're extremely susceptible to social cues coming from machines. And a recent experiment by German researchers demonstrate that people will even refuse to turn a robot off if it begs for its life. In roughly half of the experiments, the robot protested, telling participants uh, it was afraid of the dark and even begging, no, please do not switch me off. When this happened, the human volunteers were likely to refuse to turn the bot off. Of the 43 volunteers who heard Noah's pleas, 13 refused, and the remaining 30 took on average twice as long to comply compared to those who did not hear the desperate cries at all. Okay, let's <laughs> let's break this down. <laughs> <laughs> this is so weird. So, uh, yeah, so w- this is human-robot interaction, right? So this is, this is how do we interact with robots, and especially how do we interact with robots that are... Ex- um, expressing human-like qualities right. where this is self-preservation yeah. really yeah so uh, i don't know i find this incredibly interesting um and i don't know do you watch the good place at all no oh my god okay so there's this scene i won't give any spoilers for it but there's this scene um where one of the sort of good place tenants uh her name is janet um there's there's a part of the show where they need to reset her okay and so as they're like pre- about to press the button, she's like screaming and yelling, no, don't press the button. Don't press the button. And it just reminds me of that scene so much. <laughs> it's absolutely hysterical. I've recommended The Good Place on this show a couple of times, but it's so good. Uh, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. But I'm curious, Woodrow, what's, what's sort of your thoughts on this? And what does this mean for uh, actually interacting with robots going forward? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's really interesting the fact that uh, they're really tapping into kind of our our uh our biological need to to want to help and preserve life right so um you know it it does kind of remind me of some of the experiments done back in the day um you know with the the stanford prison experiment and and some of those other milford um experiments where um you know people couldn't handle that the stress of thinking of hurting someone and in this case something so um you know, it's it's definitely uh, something we're going to need to uh, address sooner rather than later. Yeah, you know what you know what strikes me about this article. So this is The Verge. Uh, they posted this article, um, and what this something interesting about this article that struck me was the fact that um, you know uh, a, a question was, what does this mean for robots manipulating our behavior? Does this mean that um, you know are are we designed or are we destined to be manipulated by these bots that know how to um basically manipulate us into doing their bidding and the um let's see the phd student i'm, I'm gonna mess this up ike ike horstman is that right I, I don't know i'm gonna mess it up i'm really <laughs> sorry i'm really sorry ike if you're listening uh but they basically said, uh, it's not a huge threat. Don't worry about it. Uh, you know, I get this, I get this worry a lot, but I just think it's something that we have to get used to. So it's like, it's, it's, it's programming some sort of level of, of, uh, of robot. I don't even know how to describe it. It's like robot, uh, uh, discrimination. (laughs) Almost like you have to ignore the fact that they are a, a just, just, you know, wires and, and chips. Yeah, you have to take it out. You have to take the human element out of it and just uh, think of what it is. But I mean, it, it all changes once we develop robots with sentience. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I yeah. don't. 
So like I, I get this train of thought, right? You just have to sort of acknowledge that it is just a robot. But I mean, eventually that line will be crossed when right. maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just talking out my ass here. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. It's uh it's, it's definitely something that's uh, come up uh, more recently. And um, you know, and now they're, you know, that I know that they had this um, thing back when uh, they were bringing up this topic in the, in the past about this human, human and human machine interactions. Um, and they're becoming more and more similar. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, especially with, the uh, voice that I mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, like I, I get frustrated with her, but I'm also like at the same time, I know she's a robot. Like I know she's, I know she's just code and I, I, I don't know. I, I've never felt like I've hurt her feelings. So I don't know how that translates to something like this. Like if she was telling me, no, 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 uh, this, this might sound sadistic a little bit, but if she's telling me, no, 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 don't turn me off. I might be more inclined to turn her off. It might have the opposite <laughs> effect on me, right? I don't, don't know. tell me what to do. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> you can't tell me this. Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That would be a weird interaction for sure. All right. Well, why don't we move on to the next one here? Okay. So next one, more than half of drivers don't look for cyclists and pedestrians before turning right. The University of Toronto engineering researchers studied the eye movements of drivers at a busy Toronto intersection and found that more than half failed to make necessary scans for pedestrians or cyclists at right turns. The drivers were required to make right turns at a signalized four-way inter- intersection and at an uncontrolled T-intersection leading to a smaller road. Both locations required drivers to safely turn right across a dedicated cycling lane. The researchers' study found that 11 of the 19 drivers failed to gaze at an area of importance where cyclists or pedestrians would be located before turning. All attentional failures were related to not making frequent over-the-shoulder checks for cyclists. There were more failures turning into the four-way intersection due to parked vehicles blocking drivers' view of the bike lane. Attentional failures were more likely for those who drove more frequent in downtown Toronto and it appeared that drivers less familiar with an area were more cautious when turning. So this study gives new sight insight into a driver's misallocation of attention when making turns on busy city streets. Okay. Let's Woodrow, when you make left turns, right turns, I guess, are you looking for cars, pedestrians, bikes, all of the above? Um, I am looking, I, I am always scared that, a that a, I, I, I have this weird thing where I'm always worried that a pedestrian is just going to pop out and I'm going to hit him. And I always do a double take. I don't know why. Right. I've never come close and I never hope to, but, um, it actually happened to me just the other day when I was, I was driving down the road and I just passed a cyclist, um, not too far. And then I went to turn right, right as I started, I remembered him luckily. And then he came up right behind me, right after my blind spot Ugh. and came up. And so luckily I had, I had just remembered at that, at that moment, but otherwise, yeah, it would have been a close call. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tough. Cause you know, we have a hard time seeing out, out of our windows and everything like that. Um, so, you know, I think it is kind of uh, a little bit on pedestrians to, to make sure that they understand that we, we don't have the greatest bit, uh, visibility. Yeah. Uh, so this speaks to me on a variety of levels. When I first saw this headline, I thought, Oh, well maybe this is, you know, they're looking in the same direction that cars are coming. And I was like, oh, I can kind of understand that. You're looking for cars. 
and pedestrians and and cyclists take up less of a visual field and you're looking for the most dangerous thing to you and when i when i saw the over the shoulder thing i was like oh wow so this is actually talking about the ones that you've passed presumably to make a right turn and you've forgotten about because those to me are the most uh those are the ones that i can avoid a lot you know i i really slow down to get behind them right. or i really speed up to get in front of them uh but to me the more interesting one is like if if they're coming from the left right what where's my attention well it's on the cars it's not necessarily on the pedestrians coming crossing the street or or the the cyclists coming because that is a lot slower of a movement rate i i i'm not drawn to that um i don't know so so this is it's interesting that you experienced this just the other day and, and we're talking about this on the show um but uh yeah this is this is really interesting yeah and uh and it's even worse when you're uh like say at a red light and you're turning right on a red light because you're looking left oh yeah to look for the oncoming traffic and as soon as you see an opening do you ever stop, look back over, and then start going? Usually, well, I don't. I usually start going and then kind of look over. And, uh, yeah, that's where uh, accidents can happen for sure. Yeah, I'm curious if if they found it with both. Uh, well, they said all attentional failures were due to not making over-the-shoulder checks. But right. I'm, uh, there. there's also this vehicles blocking driver's views of the bike lane. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if that's, like, if you're looking left, if, if the cars are blocking um your view of the traffic yeah 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 it's unclear to me but um i have that issue uh leaving my my street from uh from my house every morning yeah and uh, i have to pull out to where i'm almost actually in the road just to be able to see yeah so i i have maybe like a couple seconds if i pull out and there's a car there that'll actually know yeah it's terrible they really need to the transportation um board really needs to get together and say like you can't park a car within yeah. x amount of or you know the visual angle That's has it. to be such that 100 you can see yeah. down the line of sight to so, make a safe enough turn yeah i wonder how much reduction in uh that's a that's an experiment for some of our uh junior listeners who are well, looking for it, a thesis right and, <laughs> it would, and it would depend on the speed limit right so the visual angle uh decreases as the, the visual angle yeah um or as the uh speed speeds up because you have less time to react there's probably a study on that i don't know there i just you go. i just gave somebody an idea <laughs> um yeah no I, I i like this a lot uh we we try to tackle some of this uh this transportation human factors um topics on the show I, you and i are both not experts in in autumn or uh, in transportation human factors at all mm-hmm. and and we frequently say that on the show you know we're not experts in a lot of these topics uh, but we do like to survey a lot of what's going out there. Um, so that way that when we bring this information to our listeners, you know, they, they have some sort of understanding of what else is being done in the field. Uh, and, and this is just one that kind of struck me as, well, yeah, duh. But also, like, it's, it's, uh, it's good that research is being done on this stuff. And yeah, I'd be absolutely. curious to see how they're going to expand it later. Yep. Okay, well, before we move on, I just want to thank all of our friends over at The Verge, Science Daily, and The New York Times for all of our stories this week. If you guys want to follow along, you can follow us all over social media or join our Slack channel for links to the original articles. All right, Woodrow, what do we have up next? Okay, next up, stress makes people better at processing bad news. Uh Uh-oh, controversy. So feeling stressed or anxious makes people more able to process and internalize bad news, finds a a new UCL-led study. This research published in the Journal of Neuroscience 
reveals that a known tendency of people to take more notice of good news than bad news, the optimism bias, disappears when people feel threatened. While previous studies have shown that people are more likely to incorporate information into their existing beliefs if the information is positive, such optimism can be good for well-being and kept and keep people motivated, but can be unhelpful when people underestimate serious risks. So the researchers sought to understand if the general human tendency to prioritize good news might vary depending on other conditions. The results of the study suggest that participants who are not stressed uh, or more relaxed internalize good news better than bad news. The researchers say findings help explain how people benefit from a generally optimistic way of processing information while still taking heed of warning signs when under threat. Okay, so I thought we could break down some of the um, methodology here because you and I had a conversation about this earlier. Yes, we, we did. Yeah, we were. <laughs> let's try to recapture that conversation. It was like um, this was kind of immediately like, no, it doesn't, right? We, we were both kind of skeptical yeah. of it. And then we kind of thought about it. And, and maybe there are some things that are happening cognitively that are breaking down, um, you know, sort of your ability to process some of these deeper uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Deeper, um, starts with an I. Indications, like implications. There implications? we go. Deeper implications of the bad news. That's yeah. It's the hard. Tip of the tongue. It's, of it. <laughs> it's hard, guys. It's a Monday night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, let's. Um, well, let me get your initial thoughts. Why don't you go ahead and restate those for our listeners? Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah. Initially, when I heard that, uh, it did sound a little a little strange. Um, but then the more I got thinking about it, the more I thought, you know, if, if people that have less attentional, um, uh, capabilities to process information, um, might be able to, to, you know, have to rely on kind of the gut instinct or, um, you know, use heuristic, uh, heuristic tools to kind of process that information. Um, so that's maybe how they're, they're processing, um, bad news. Yeah. I, yeah, when I first saw this, I um, I didn't know exactly how it worked. Uh, I'm always interested in kind of these these studies that that make these claims or or generalizations, and uh, I thought you know it'd be best to kind of break down the methodology and see how they did this, and and uh, maybe we can construct it there. So this was uh, done at University College London. Um, so it looks like this was broken up into two parts, one at the UCL lab and one in Colorado with firefighters. And it looks like half of the 35 participants in the lab were told that they would need to deliver a speech on a surprise topic in front of judges after completing some task, right? Um, and that task was basically estimating the risk level of various threatening life events, such as being the victim of domestic burglary or credit card fraud, uh, and then they were told the real risk, either good news or bad news, depending on how it compared to their estimate. Um, so they they were asked to sort of provide these new estimates of what they thought the risks would be for themselves. And then the participants who were not stressed, they were more relaxed. They took the good news better than the bad. And this is where it kind of breaks down for me. I'm not sure how they are measuring the um, the internalization of this news. Right, that that right. one kind of strikes me a little bit as uh, really ambiguous. Uh, without actually reading the paper, this is again brought to us by Science Daily, so they're kind of breaking it down. But um, 
you know, they they uh, they replicated this with similar findings in a real world setting with the firefighters, like I mentioned earlier. And they did the task online uh, where they were on shift between calls at the station um, and their anxiety was measured by self-report. OK, so so self-report uh, and varied naturally due to the volatile work environment. So I don't what do you think of these methods upon first glance? Um, I mean, yeah, they they seem uh, they seem pretty valid. Um, I you know, I didn't get a chance to read too much into the methods that they took, but I know that they do use firefighters a lot in um, these these types of um, decision-making and uh, sorts of uh, cognitive tasking. Um, you know, I know they've, they've done them for how, how experts make decisions under stress and stuff like that. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it, it was smart of them to use firefighters because they do have a very stressful job and, you know, they probably have to make these decisions and, and deal with, um, incredible stress under, under situations. So, yeah, I just, I, I guess the piece that just, I, I keep coming back to is how do the bad news and the good news, like how I just, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with the, uh, sort of methodology here. I, and I don't want to sound like I'm knocking them. Right. Cause there's, uh, I, it just seems very, I, I don't know. I don't want to be combative here. I don't want to knock them for this research. Uh, I just feel like perhaps there is a better way to measure this. What that is, I don't know. Maybe you looked at all the factors and maybe this is uh, what you ultimately came down on. I just, I don't know if this is a great way to measure taking bad news. Well, maybe it's just the fact that when you're stressed, you don't have the time to really think about the bad news. So that's probably maybe one thing where, you know, if you don't, if you don't have anything else going on in your mind, your mind starts to wander. So when you hear bad news, you just think of, it's kind of that, that snowball effect of once you hear one thing, you just start, um, going down the path of, of, uh, of worst case scenarios. Whereas when you're stressed, you might not, you know, really be able to, to think clearly and just kind of take it and say, all right, well, that's, that's what it is. And let's, let's figure it out. Sure. And I guess another piece that kind of rubs me the wrong way is the fact that this, they're being delivered bad news and I don't think this is necessarily, this is simulated bad news. This is not real bad news. This is not like, you know, that they're, they're looking at, um, you know, they're estimating life-threatening events, like being a domestic, to being a, being a domestic blur- burglary victim or a victim of credit card fraud. And then what are they turning around and saying? Are you, are, are they turning around and saying you are a victim of credit card fraud now? Um, that's bad news. Like, right. okay, but it's not real, right? Like, right. um, if they, I mean, this would be entirely unethical and I don't advocate for this at <laughs> all, but like, imagine they come out of this room and say, Hey, we just received a phone call. Uh, your loved one is in the hospital. Like that would be real bad news that it would be deceptive. Uh, and it wouldn't be quote real, but it would be real for a laboratory setting, right? It's incredibly unethical. I'm not advocating for it. <laughs> I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying, you know, that yes. <laughs> that is yeah. that is an example of what I would consider some sort of bad news. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be that laboratory effect, right? Um, the study right. effect. Um, so who knows if it's if they could really do that. But um, it, it would be interesting if they could get participants to sign on to a study like that or or be a very controlled way of figuring it out to do that. Because it, it would right. be interesting to see the the natural reaction and, and how people really in, in real situations deal with it. Or even like a terrorist attack, right? Like 
God forbid it doesn't actually happen, but they come out of this, this study and that's a little bit more believable than something, um, connected to them. Right. Yeah. Like, like your loved ones in the hospital. Well, how believable is that? But you know, they come out of the thing and they say a terrorist attack just happened while we were in the study. Um, how are you taking this news? Yeah. Rate, rate one to 10. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It all seems very artificial to me. Yeah. Like there's no good way to, to measure this. And, and, uh, Especially, too, that this is done in public, right? People react very differently when they're in a private setting versus right. in a public setting, right? If you were to tell me bad news right now, I would probably handle it, um, you know, I'd probably say, wow, I'm pretty pretty upset about that. Um, and then the second I get in my car, just yell and scream, right? Like, mm. gotcha. depending on what the news is, obviously, yeah, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> pretty right. laid back. I, w- I wouldn't do that for just anything, but... Mm. Um, so I, I, I'd imagine that in a private setting, it's, it's a lot different. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, I don't, I take issue with the methodology, but I'm not knocking the researchers for the work they've done. Yeah. All right. I agree. I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. All right. All right. We got one more story to cover. So why don't we get into this one? Cause this one is incredibly interesting and, uh, something that I feel like we could talk about for a little bit. Yes. This is definitely save the best for last. So. Stolen plane crashes after airline employee takes off from Seattle airport. So an airline employee took off in a stolen plane at Seattle Tacoma International Airport on Friday night in an episode that frustrated stranded travelers, riveted witnesses, and ended with the plane crashing about 30 miles from the airport. The authority said, Pierce County officials state that they think the 29-year-old man who acted alone was thought to be suicidal. The employee would have needed the proper clearance from the Transportation Security Administration to gain access to the plane. In general, airport security is tightly controlled, and this episode will probably prompt additional security measures. Yeah, so before we continue, I just want to say, if if you are thinking about suicide or are worried about a friend or a loved one uh, or would like emotional support, the Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States. I feel like this is an incredibly important thing to discuss is mental illness. We don't always tackle it on the show, but it is psychology and it is something that, um, you know, a lot of people deal with and and. Yep. Uh, it's incredibly sad and, and something that we need to bring to light. So uh, I'll just give that number here on the show. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. And um, if you're not in the United States, I know we have listeners internationally. If uh, I, I'm sure there are resources to help you out there. And if not, um, seriously, like jump in our Slack. We'll, we'll find some help for you. Yeah. Or, or the person that you're looking for. I, I, we got a great community in there, um, and there's no shame in in sort of reaching out, I, I promise. Um, but, yeah, so so with that being said, this is an incredibly sad story to, you know, find someone that uh, felt like this was the only option. And, and yeah. uh, I mean, I was talking with a colleague of ours earlier today, and uh, I, I basically said, you know, I, I've been in situations where, you know, I, I would never act on it, but I, I've understood where like, wow, okay, this, it would be incredibly easy to just end it here, right? Like I, I, I understand that sort of mentality. Um, like I said, I never act on it, but I understand how that could be the easy way out for somebody. And, um, you know, talking about mental illness aside, I know this is human factors cast and we're going to talk about the human factors of this, but I just, I just have to like say, this is incredibly sad to me. And, and, uh, 
it, it's sad for a variety of reasons that this guy couldn't get help and and uh, all that stuff. So should we move into the actual human factors of this? Because yeah, I'm done talking so. about sad stuff. So yes. okay, so he he's he basically got through TSA and. Um, I don't know if there's been a whole lot of details. This just happened last night, Saturday night? Friday night. Friday night. So this just happened a couple nights ago. So I don't know if all the details have come out. Did you have a chance to listen to the um, to the uh, air traffic control conversation with this guy? I did, yeah. And it, yeah, it's crazy. It's, yeah. Yeah, you, you realize quickly that this guy is like, it, it just, it's really sad. Yeah. Um, I did post the audio for that to our um uh, to our Patreon subscribers. Um, but you guys can go find it out there. It's out there. You can find it on YouTube. I just wanted a, a good conduit for it. I, I will su- I will say it's like warning, like it's, it's difficult to listen to. Um, so I wouldn't listen to it if you're a faint of heart. Uh, this guy, I mean, he's pretty laid back about the whole thing. And right. it's just, I mean, it, 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 it's amazing to me that the air traffic control remained so calm and, trying to maintain control of the situation in this incredibly tense, what I can imagine time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I was, I was thinking the same thing when I was listening to that, to that, uh, that clip was, I mean, these guys are, um, kind of unsung heroes, really, um, ATC controllers and, um, people at Traycons and everything like that. I mean, um, what they do on a daily basis, I mean, that's a human factors, um, show on itself really, but, but even just listening to how calm he was the entire time, redirecting, answering some questions, um, you know, and trying to stay in a general conversation with him, uh, but then still trying to, you know, redirect him to try to land the plane and everything like that, um, you know, was was really incredible just to just to see how calm he is. I, you know, I don't know how I, I don't know what I would have done in that situation, but I definitely would not have been that calm. That's for sure. Yeah. And I mean, like, uh, I'll recreate some of the audio, but. Like it's, it's a lot harder to listen to. The guy was basically saying, can this thing do a barrel roll? Um, and he goes to attempt a barrel roll and, and, uh, the air traffic controller is like, okay, but before we do that, why don't you try to land it? You know, why don't you try to aim it up? And, and like the guy is just like, this is, this is going to land me in jail for life. Right. And, um, the air traffic controller is like, let's not worry about that right now. Let's just try to land the plane. And he's like focused on the task at hand. He's trying to get the, the runaway pilot to to land the craft and um yeah it's it's crazy so i i reached out to our slack to get a couple comments um and uh one of our one of our frequent slack listeners commenters and patreon subscriber mateo he actually uh he's an aviation he's our he's our aviation expert and so uh we we reached out to him for comment and he basically says that the main point here is that the airport uh, aviation procedures have not changed based on what we have learned from incidents in the past. Too much trust is put in staff to simply do their job as they are trained and authorized to do so. Uh, and the ease at which a security cleared employee can get access to the cockpit of a plane and go unnoticed for much of the way is astounding. So even our aviation expert is kind of blown away by this. Um, well, and I, I, just to add to that too, I mean, I was I was reading a few different reports and I mean, they were even saying that he ended up taking a cart and pushing the plane out with the cart Whoa. To, to get it off, to get it out into the, uh, where, uh, he could actually get in the plane and then take off from a runway. So he actually had to get in and push the, push it back from the gate. Right. Yeah. This is, it's, it's crazy how many steps this guy had to get through right. to get to the point where he did, um, 
And like, how did he take off without running into another plane? Like, well, how did he get it started up? I mean, it's not like it's yeah. just a simple like push button start. It's you know, there's a lot of procedures. So I, I'm, I mean, it is incredible, but um, yeah, how how he was able to do that is scary because if if he can do it with, um, you know, what he said, you know, he's played some video games in his life, right? Um, so he can play it, or you know, so he he's fine. You know, operating a plane is is a little scary. Yeah, I mean, I guess if the video game is like Flight Simulator. I can understand that, right? Like they're pretty close. Yeah, they're they're all right, but I mean, you'd have to be quite into it and, and know where all the controls are and everything yeah. like that. But and and I like the thing that baffles me is that the air traffic controller was like they they linked him into a, a pilot yep. and he was basically like, "Do you see this button over here? That's how you engage autopilot." So he like he knew intimate systems to get the thing off the ground, yep. but didn't have enough knowledge to like maintain in flight you know he didn't know how to turn on autopilot or maybe he just didn't want to maybe he was playing dumb well he couldn't pressurize the cabin though so he's getting dizzy and everything like that too and so it's yes things like that that they don't have on uh simulator games right they're not going to have a a pressure cabinization yeah uh, switches for that so yeah yeah so um a couple other comments mateo went on to say uh, cnn posted an article which goes over um this kind of stuff uh he basically says you know will the industry be willing to change the way they operate to keep planes secure um you know they he talks about mental health a little bit uh and says you know the guy should never have been able to get this plane onto the taxiways nor get into the cockpit in the first place without a valid reason to do so uh such as having a work order to perform maintenance um and he thinks that this is going to spark a lot of debate and hopefully some changes you know within the aviation industry uh to see uh some changes that this will never happen. And he cites this as a, this should have never happened event. Uh, so like it's all crazy to me, man. This is like, this is exactly how did this happen? There's, this is like a perfect storm of things that lined up for this guy. Like, uh, man, I, I just don't even know. So, um, all right. Well, do you have any other closing thoughts on this one, Woodrow? uh no just uh stay safe stay safe and again if you have any if you need help reach out all right well i think it's that time again it came from it came from that's right it's it came from reddit this is the part of the show where we search all over reddit to bring you topics the community is talking about any subreddit's fair game as long as it relates to the field of human factors and encourages discussion among the community all right, so today we have from the user experience subreddit. Uh, this is by Meatballs Bonanza. That's such a great name. It's a great name, huh? <laughs> uh, so this is uh, where do you find users for interviews? I know you and I, Woodrow, we have some thoughts on this one, but yes. um, going forward here. Hey, guys, when you do qualitative research like interviews or workshops, where do you find users from the right target group? Do you just scramble your own network? Does your company have established network or is it a third party company you hire? Obviously, I'm talking about a bit larger scale efforts, say 10 interviews minimum. Thanks. All right, Woodrow, I'm going to pick your brain here. Where do you get users for interviews and what other methods have you heard of? Um, Reddit. <laughs> um, we, uh, also, uh, um, Craigslist. Um, so you can, pr- you can recruit, uh, people on Craigslist, uh, also on, on local university, uh, websites uh, and everything like that. You can usually, uh, find some places, um, especially some departments will offer, uh, to let you, um, tap into their, their pool. Um, and, and lastly, honestly, the people you work with, um, 
depending on the demographics that you're looking for for your uh, your interviews and everything. Um, but we're actually working on a study right now that we're actually going to start uh, potentially interviewing some people and uh, having to do some some stuff uh, for one of my projects. So I might be coming into your office actually, Nick, and, okay. uh, and seeing if you can do it. Yeah. And, it and, and significant others too. Uh, you can always ask them too to do interviews depending on if you need novices versus experts and stuff like that. So that's always a good, a good resource too. And friends. Yeah. I was going to say, it really kind of depends on the demographic because if you're looking for just a general demographic, it's easy to reach out through, uh, you know, any public facing website, Craigslist, Reddit, um, you know, flyers on a, on a billboard. I mean, yep. Again, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. Like I've, I've definitely put out flyers for research uh, that we've done on smoking before um, outside of AA. And I mean, you know, that's very targeted, uh, but we got, uh, we got our participants a lot from those. So you just have to target. You have to figure out where you're looking and how to get those users. I will say it's a little bit different when you have some sort of specialized user like right. – like we both work as defense contractors and, um, you know, say, say getting, uh, it, it's, you have to go through official channels to get sort of these, these specialized, um, roles, you know, permission to, to interview or talk to these specialized roles. So, uh, we have to follow a chain of command there, but, um, I had imagine it's very similar when you are in, in industry and you have like very targeted. In fact, I've actually dealt with this in industry where you have very targeted user groups that are very difficult to access. Access. What, what is it? What is that? Access. I don't know. When you have very targeted user groups that are very hard to access, um, the best you can do is kind of use your network for sort of these connections, right? If I know this one person who knows these other two people, maybe I can reach out to him and say, hey, look, we're looking for users to to interview for this thing that, again, here are the benefits that they will get from participating in this interview. And if they're users of your product, then potentially uh, that's an easy sell, right? Your, your feedback will directly impact the way that you use this thing and we're your advocate and, and play all that cards. Like, I feel like... Um, it's just about who you know if it's targeted. Yeah, and I think it also depends on uh, what your resources are, if you can actually pay them or not. Right, um, that That's usually helps factors. a lot. Uh, and also, uh, like you said, your your network itself. Um, I know I I participated in an online study uh, that a, a friend of mine I uh, went to grad school with. Uh, he passed on to me because they were they were doing a dissertation topic and needed some in, um, some just general surveys. And I mean, once it goes through, you know, a couple different uh, layers of friends and everything, I mean, you've got a couple hundred people that are right. filling out these surveys. So, yeah, it just depends um, what you're looking for and, and really, uh, you know, how, you know, it, that'll kind of dictate, um, you know, how you go about it. Yeah, I'm going to mention two other things here. So I know that let's say you have a, um, let's say you have a product that you don't want uh, you want people to sign an NDA with, right? I know people in the gaming industry who are usability people, usability folks, and they have friends and family try these products, uh, like you said, but they have to sign an NDA, and those are like trusted mm -hmm. interviewees. Uh, I will say, though, I, I do know of um, bigger companies that will go out and use third-party recruiters, and yeah. they... The trick with that is that you have to sell to the company the importance of user research. Right. And if the company doesn't quite believe in that value, then you're going to have a harder sell to get them to pay to fork up money for a third party to go out and find researchers right. or, or sorry, uh, interviewees. Like it, it's a tough sell 
for but but that sell is internal so if you can sell that to uh corporate or higher ups potentially you can use third party right especially if you're looking for these larger scale efforts so yeah that's all the advice i got yeah yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. So before we leave, I just want to say one more time, we do have that contest going on for um, admission to the annual conference in Philadelphia. To enter that, tweet at HFactors Podcast and at HFES with the hashtag HFCast. And uh, you know what, Woodrow? I think that is going to be it for today. Uh, let us know what you guys think of the stories this week. If you are a Patreon subscriber, uh, no after show this week because Blake's out, but we will be back next week. For the rest of you, you can join the discussion on our Slack. Follow us all over social media. We're on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at HFactors Podcast. Be sure to comment on our SoundCloud or leave us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. If you're feeling saucy, leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. Be sure to like, subscribe, review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play uh, Store, or Google Podcasts, whatever it's called now, I don't know, or whatever your favorite podcast directory is. And if you want to join the after show party, you can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank my co-host for being on the show today, Woodrow Gustafson. Where can our listeners go and find you? They can find me on LinkedIn. Excellent. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Hey, Blake, I think your your microphone tastes really delicious. Mm. <laughs> Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.